to My Favorite Theorem, the math podcast with no quiz at the end. I'm your host, Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and this is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. How's it going? All right. I uh, got to take an overnight Amtrak trip last weekend, my first time, so that was pretty fun. Went from Salt Lake to Sacramento and got to see lots of beautiful Nevada and California landscapes on the way. Yeah, so, I, 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 did, I did an overnight Amtrak once and it was less fun. It was from Jackson, Mississippi to Chicago. And uh, which I mean, it's, you know, but again, it's all night, right? So you, you don't really see anything. And uh, it's remarkable how many times you have to pull over for the freight trains, right? Yeah, uh, this is this is this is That's how American rail is really different from European rail. Uh, you're at the mercy yes. of all the freight. But that's uh, yeah, okay. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I guess today, uh, living on the only portion of Amtrak's corridor for which they actually own the tracks oh. is our guest, Juliet Bruce. <laughs> At least I hope I'm correct that, that that's where you're living. Otherwise, that was a weird introduction. <laughs> so please tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Thank you so much for the introduction. I'm Juliet Bruce, as said, and I am a postdoc at uh, Brown University. So, in fact, I am in the Northeast along the Acela Express corridor. Right, right. Um, in fact, I've never taken that Amtrak corridor. I've only taken the very slow ones in, that you were talking about, but uh, I hope to take it soon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sure. Find yourself someplace to go between you know, New York, D.C., Boston, I guess. To Boston, you don't really need the Acela. It's already no. pretty close. Sure. Yeah. You, can, you can walk to Boston. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> if you're really That's a pretty dedicated. far walk. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> yeah. Yes. So I guess this isn't uh, the train cast. This is a math podcast. Right. So, so yeah, what are your mathematical interests at Brown? Yeah, so uh, my math area of math is kind of in the intersection of algebraic geometry and commutative algebra which is all about kind of studying the interaction between this algebra coming from kind of the symbolic equations we get when we write down polynomial systems of polynomial equations and the kind of geometry we can look at when we study the zero set of those equations. So we can look at the simultaneous solutions to that system of polynomials and that's some lovely geometric object. And alternatively, we can look at these symbols we write on our paper and somehow in some point in math, we learn that we can do lovely things like solving, a finding the roots of a quadratic polynomial by graphing them on our graphing calculator pictorially, or we learn we can use kind of symbols and write down things like the quadratic formula and magically they give the same answer. And kind of a lot of my research is in some sense a generalization of this fact that there's two different ways to study the solutions to a system of polynomial equations. Right. I'm, I must admit, I'm pretty naive about algebraic geometry, but there is this kind of magic in it, which is, you know, like in what, seventh or eighth grade or something, you start learning to graph the zeros of polynomials. Maybe you might not use that exact language for it, but you understand, you start to understand that you can intersect like two different polynomial equations and get, find these these intersection points and stuff like that. And yet this is also like cutting edge math, you know, mm -hmm. just add a few variables or, or bump up the powers of the, the numbers that you're using. And suddenly this is, this is stuff that, you know, people are getting PhDs in. It's right. kind of, kind of cool. Right. Or, or work yeah, over it's... a finite field or <laughs> whatever yeah. those are. Yeah. Yep. 
I mean, I always find it fascinating with just how many different areas algebraic geometry has touched in mathematics and in the world. It seems to start from such a lovely and beautiful, simple idea that we learn in, you know, middle school or high school and just kind of grows exponentially. And right. uh, yeah. turns out it's actually a very deep idea that maybe we don't always appreciate when we first see. I know I certainly did not. Sure. Yeah. Sure. All right. So then what is your favorite theorem? So the, my favorite theorem, or which I, the theorem I want to talk about today, I know it as Petri's theorem. I know some people know it as the Babich-Enriquez-Nother-Petri theorem. I'm not sure exactly on the correct attribution here, so I'll stick with Petri's theorem and apologize to Babich, Nother, and Enriquez uh, about who maybe want the appropriate attribution here. And uh, this is a theorem kind of from classical algebraic geometry, which means from the 19th century. Um, and it's about kind of understanding this, uh, the interaction between kind of thinking about systems of solutions of polynomial equations abstractly and kind of how we can realize that abstract solution set concretely as solutions to an honest-to-God set of polynomial equations that we could write down and describing what those polynomials might look like. Okay. Um, and so the statement of the theorem, I'll state the theorem and then we'll walk through it maybe and you can ask questions because I know sure, when yeah. it's stated it's a little bit of a mouthful and a little scary, is that if I have a curve that is um, non-hyperelliptic and I embed it via the canonical embedding, then the image of the canonical embedding is cut out by quadrics unless the curve is trigonal, meaning it emits a three-to-one map to the Riemann sphere, or it's a curve in the plane of degree five. So that's the statement of the theorem. That's a mouthful I know to get through. Yeah. So. Sure. Right. Okay. That's, that's interesting. So, you know, as I already confessed, very, this is outside of maybe my, my mathematical comfort zone a little bit. Um, and how, how should I think about these exceptions? Like how exceptional are the exceptions? Is it like a lot of things or just yeah. a couple little things that, and otherwise everything falls under this umbrella? Yeah, so that's an, a fabulous question. And so I gave, there are kind of a few, two exceptions to this theorem, right? And if a curve admits a three to one map to the Riemann sphere, so if there's a map that goes to the Riemann sphere that kind of every pre-image has three points, it kind of looks like a sheet, a three, a sheet wrapped up three times around the sphere, um, or it's a very specific curve in the plane of degree five. And so these exceptions, um, there's an infinite number of them, but it turns out kind of, if you think about them correctly, it's kind of a small proportion or it's not, you know, it's not most curves that will satisfy this. So this is somehow saying, with these few exceptions aside, we can actually understand the image of what's called the canonical map. Um, okay. And so maybe I should say, what is actually going on here? It's something yeah. a little deep, so. Yeah. Um, so kind of the starting point of algebraic geometry is that we want, I said we want to study the solution sets of polynomial equations. Well, it turns out that that's how the field started, but pretty quickly people realized, well, this is some geometric space. It's a set of points. Mm -hmm. And instead of looking at 
kind of the solution set to a particular set of polynomial equations, we can kind of abstract this away and forget the polynomial equations together and just think about what possible sets of solutions could I have and think about that kind of abstractly mm -hmm. in kind of the ether. There's no polynomials in sight. We can just say, oh, you know, this is a solution set to some system of polynomial equations. We don't know which. And it's a lovely theorem that, you know, if we're talking about curves, it turns out algebraic geometers have this very weird uh, convention that curves would look to people like us like a two-dimensional surface. Right. This is because I like to work over the complex numbers, so I, my polynomials have solutions, and the complex plane is two-dimensional. So we have this weird terminology, so abstractly, a curve, if it's smooth and has satisfies some other conditions, just looks like a closed surface, mm -hmm. possibly with some holes in it, so it would have a genus G surface. So if you've seen like a donut or a torus, that's just an algebraic curve of genus 1. Mm -hmm. And if you've seen a sphere, that's just an abstract algebraic curve of genus 0. Right. Um, right. And the beauty of these is that somehow, if we take these objects, we can realize them in space, we can put them into some large complex space or some large projective space. And once we've done that, you can ask, well, I know there is some set of polynomials that cut this space out because it's an algebraic variety. Mm -hmm. It's a system, or we know it's by definition a solution set to some polynomials. And you can ask what polynomials actually cut it out under this realization in space. Mm -hmm. um, and often there are many different realizations. So for example, you could look at the parabola very simple example, we can look at the parabola x squared minus y equals zero. This gives us the normal parabola going through the origin. It's realized in space. But we could also abstractly think about just kind of the parabola floating around, no coordinate system at all. And we could also realize that same parabola in space by just, you know, shifting it up or down the y-axis and moving it around. And the polynomials that cut it out when I start moving it around, we learn are different, right? We learn how to do transforms. We knew somehow like x minus 1 squared minus y equals 0 gives a different solution set, but it looks the same in the plane, just moved around. Mm -hmm. And so you could ask, when I put my abstract curves in space, what are the polynomials that actually cut this thing out? And so those are kind of the input to the theorem, is these abstract curves, and we say we put them into space, and what are they cut out by? So that's kind of the input, and the, an the theorem is answering that question. What are they cut out by? What are they defined by? Right. So are, are you assuming you're starting with a plane curve? or No. Okay. So um, this curve doesn't have to be in the plane, mm -hmm. although um, it's kind of just this abstract notion of a curve. So it's somehow just, in general, a kind of smooth-looking surface that's compact right. and has G-holes. So maybe like a two-hole torus or a three-hole torus. It's kind of some very weird donut-looking shapes, mm -hmm. essentially, is what the curve goes in. What right. it was the input of this theorem. Right, okay. And you mentioned something called the, the sort of canonical embedding, so that, 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 yeah. might, that might require a little terminology, so. Uh... Exactly, so what do I mean by the canonical embedding? Um, defining it exactly is, a, is complicated, and it's not something I 
would want to try to do in, sure. in this podcast. Especially but instead, audio. Yeah. <laughs> especially with audio. Right. Um, but instead, um, let me just kind of give this notion, right? I said, you know, if we're looking at standard parabolas in the plane, there's a lot of different ways we could put it in the plane. We could put it through the origin. We could put it so the central, like the vertex is at 1, 1 or 2, 1, or we could do all these things. Mm -hmm. And there isn't, doesn't seem to necessarily be kind of a natural best choice for how we put a parabola in the plane. Right, it uh, feels very it arbitrary. Yeah. It's very arbitrary. And when we change our arbitrary choice, we change the set of polynomials that define the parabola in the plane. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that when we're kind of working in a, a slightly more abstract setting, where instead of looking at kind of uh, parabolas in the plane, but we're looking at these two-dimensional surfaces, which are what algebraic geometers will think is curves, because we're looking at the complex set of points, mm -hmm. there's a almost canonical way to put them into some kind of space. And that's called the canonical embedding. It kind of arises by looking at ways you can kind of differentiate on your surface. It comes from looking at what are known as differentials on your surface. And I won't say anything more than that other than to say somehow it's this beautiful fact that was developed by people in the 19th century that there exists such a thing that allows you to transport these abstract curves into different spaces in a way that has beautiful properties. And somehow it's a great study of kind of a great tool for studying curves. Not not quite sure if this is the right question to ask, but like how, you know, you have this input to this theorem and then it, it tells you something about like, you know, which, what polynomials can be your solutions. How specific is it? Like, would it output something that, you know, we would have recognized as a polynomial in seventh grade or it, does it output something that that's like, maybe has a little more, uh, technical machinery behind it? This is an absolutely fantastic question. This is a fantastic question. So, what, right, as you're saying, this, the input is I input this abstract surface, abstract Riemann surface of genus G that satisfies some properties, and the output of the theorem is saying if it doesn't satisfy, if it doesn't fall into these two exceptional collections, which are relatively small when it comes to a list of exceptions, then we know that the defining equations are degree two. And you might ask, well, does the proof actually give, like, what are the polynomials? Can you actually write them down? Um, and in part, um, the version of Petri's theorem I know, um, in fact, gives you those polynomials in some sense. There are some choices that have to be made, and those choices kind of arise from some technicalities about but defining exactly what is the canonical embedding. There are some choices there. But once you've made those choices, Petri's theorem actually comes down and says, we can write down an honest set of degree two polynomials and a lot of variables now. Mm -hmm. The number of variables is the number of holes on my surface is the genus of my surface. So it's a lot of variables. But we can write down an honest set of equations that, that cut this out. And this is kind of this beautiful thing that takes this extremely abstract thing, this, you know, this, um, you know, curve that's abstract sitting in kind of our mind and realizes it in space and it outputs a list of polynomial equations. 
Okay, wow. So, okay, so now, now I'm thinking about elliptic curves in particular. So you mentioned there's just, yeah. there's just one variable. So that's a torus, right? You can, you can actually write this with one mm -hmm. variable? Yes. Yeah, so if you're oh, looking at an elliptic it, curve. But I always think of elliptic curves as being like y squared equals x cubed plus some change, right? Is, is, but that's not, yes. that's not degree two, is it? Or am I? That's not degree two. Right. And you're calling me on a, on a little technical point that I swept away in the beginning, yep. <laughs> which is that I said um, that our, that our I, when I said the theorems oh. carefully, I said that if our curve is non-hyperelliptic, right. and it happens that elliptic curves will kind of not be in a case where the canonical embedding yeah. um, is in fact, an embedding. Somehow you can talk about what that map might be, mm -hmm. and for an elliptic curve, that map would take your elliptic curve and map it all to a single point. Yeah, that's a bummer. <laughs> and that's a bummer. So sadly, elliptic curves, right? You know, doesn't quite work. Okay. Uh, for so it kind of is this interesting issue where, if we're looking at abstract curves of small genus, so mm -hmm. like elliptic curves are donuts of genus one, so there's one hole, or if we're looking at curves of genus 2, so there's donuts with two holes. This theorem doesn't really apply because those curves are extra special, and in fact, that's some of the beauty of things like elliptic curves. Mm -hmm. But once we're looking at more higher genuses, uh, like genus 3 or 4, and so on, you start to see very interesting things. Um, so for example, if you take a genus 3 curve, and it satisfies this property of being non-hyperelliptic, mm -hmm. whatever that means, you can realize this curve in the projective plane, which is kind of a, th a three-dimensional object, mm -hmm. cut out by some polynomials of uh, degree four. Okay. So, I mean, is this does this love at first sight? Like, did you, you know, as, as a student, read this and is this in Hartshorn somewhere, or is it uh, somewhere else, and, and and just fall in love? Yeah. So this is a great question, um, and. It's actually, as far as I'm aware, of not in Hartshorn, okay. which is kind of a weird thing because Hartshorn is notoriously quite comprehensive. Sure. Um, but all the players are in Hartshorn, mm -hmm. and in fact, um, the lead up to kind of this theorem is in is in Hartshorn. So um, the build up to this is to get to this theorem, you spend a lot of time in this fairly hard textbook, and you get to the end, and all of a sudden they say. Let's look at curves. And you think, wow, that's pretty simple. I've spent <laughs> a year and a half, two years of my life learning all this complicated machinery. And now you're going to tell me we're doing the simplest case. And you start looking at them and you see these beautiful things where all of a sudden you built this machinery that lets you compute these equations in specific cases. So say small genus. And later on, you can realize you can read this amazing theorem of Petri and see that there's actually an ar a full argument there. Of how you can write down these polynomials, and it's kind of this beautiful synergy of all the things you learned coming together in one. I mean, I guess you've kind of answered this a little already, but like, what does what do you think draws you to this theorem so much that makes you love it? Yeah. So what draws me to this theorem, I think, is a number of different things. So a, it kind of is this beautiful combination or culmination of learning so much of so many of these kind of complicated tools that don't seem closely related to the spirit of algebraic geometry, which is, again, studying polynomial equations in their solution sense. Um, but also it has this, it's this amazingly surprising thing, which is that 
somehow, if I take this abstract curve and I put it into, and I take some realization of it in space and I ask for the equations that cut it out, those equations should really depend on how I put it into space. You know, if I put them into space a different way, I'll get different equations. Mm -hmm. um, and what this theorem is saying is that these, since these exceptions to this theorem don't depend on how I put it into space, those, those things only depend on the actual curve itself in its abstract form. And somehow there's this beautiful thing that sometimes when you put things into space in the correct way and you look at their defining equations, it's telling you something very, very special about not just that particular realization of your curve, but kind of the abstract uh, ethereal curve that lives kind of off in our imagination. So part two, we like our, we like our guests to, to pair their theorem with something. So, so what, what pairs well with Petri's theorem? Yeah, so I think the thing that I thought of when I was uh, thinking what pairs well with Petri's theorem is I was thinking about how when I first started to see the, you know, glimpses of this theorem, it was chapter four of Hartshorn, so partway through this huge book um, that I had spent, you know, multiple years trying to get to that point. And all of a sudden you get there and you see this beautiful vista of mathematics, kind of, this beautiful examples that use all the tools you've got, and there kind of was no easier path there. And it made me think of another one of my favorite hobbies, which is um, mountain climbing or mountaineering, mm -hmm. um, and how, you know, there's oftentimes you have to slog through these very <laughs> tedious, long, hard, difficult, and exhausting things, <laughs> exhausting work. Not always the most enjoyable. Sometimes you're tired, sometimes your legs hurt, sometimes you're just kind of looking around and saying, wow, this is kind of a dusty desert, this is kind of a, a yeah, there's, this isn't very pretty, but all of a sudden, if you put in that work, you get to this vista and you see kind of the beauty of the world around you. And to me, you get to this theorem and you see the beauty of algebraic geometry and kind of the essence of why you did what you did, why you put in that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what are some of your uh, favorite vistas or, or mountains that you've gotten to climb? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I uh, have lived in California uh, with my partner for a long a while. And so a lot of the things I like to climb and do are kind of in the Sierra Nevada range or the Cascades. Mm -hmm. um, and not all of these ones I've actually fully summited, but I think things like looking off from Mount Shasta in Northern California has a beautiful view of go where you see the changing from how it's beautiful green forest around the mountain where it's snowy to kind of this dry browner desert as you move off into kind of Northern California. Mm -hmm. There's some beautiful vistas out, out near Lake Tahoe. You kind of climb these peaks, you get to the top and all of a sudden you can see this absolutely gorgeous lake spread out in this beautiful forest with peaks kind of circling it as a rim. That does sound amazing. Yep. As you can see, but our listeners can't, I've got uh, my Zoom background is from a hike I did recently where mm. I, I must say this hike is basically beautiful the entire time. So there there wasn't so much slogging, uh, but you know it was uh, covered in aspens and the mm. evergreens and things and just you know, you do sometimes come around this curve and suddenly you can see the Salt Lake Valley uh, kind of below where before it had just been trees. And there is something really special about mm -hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm an East Coast kid, so no Appalachians, which is still, of course, very beautiful, but uh, different vibe. So, yeah. all right. So we always like to give our guests a chance to to plug anything they're doing. Where can we find you on uh, on the inner tubes? Um, that's a great question, and I guess I would say. I have a professional website. Mm -hmm. Google my name, yep. you'll find it. There it is. Uh, of course, um, I'm also on Twitter. Who knows <laughs> For how now. long yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Limited also, time uh, offer. Yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, limited time offer potentially, also yeah. under my name. Um, and, you know, otherwise, I'm happy to respond to emails or things like that. And I'll just plug that as a final thing, I am also kind of. You can't reach me this way, but I am the president of Spectra, the Association for LGBTQ Plus Mathematicians. Mm -hmm. So I'm also very heavily involved and happy to talk and you know look at that sort of work. So if you're interested in LGBTQ mathematicians, I'd plug looking up Spectra okay. uh, right. and the work we've been doing there. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that did they just kind of recently sort of. I, I got the feeling maybe it was a little more of an amorphous organization, and now it's sort of coalescing into something that has has a little more structure i i've tried to make an algebraic geometry uh <laughs> analogy here and it's just not working but yeah. but yeah yes. this is relatively recent right so are you the first president of spectra yeah so that's absolutely right so spectra has kind of a long amorphous history um coming from kind of a lot of grassroots activism in the 90s through the 2000s, and it's existed in some form, at least with a website for, you know, a number of years. But in the last few years, we've really been trying to grow and, our, grow and formalize and expand our reach and the ability of support we're able to give LGBTQ mathematicians. Um, part of this includes kind of creating a formal board structure, and we did that over a number of years with it going into effect this last year, and I was lucky enough to be chosen by the previous board members to be the inaugural president for this year. Um, so I've been lucky to kind of take the reins and uh, guide the organization through its first kind of formal year this year, although building upon all the amazing work a number of extremely dedicated and thoughtful people have done in uh, many years previously. Yeah, and I think it really has been a, a maybe lifeline or a really a, a place that you know, young LGBTQ mathematicians have kind of maybe sometimes felt isolated where they are and able to be like, is there anyone else like me? And like, of course, there are a lot of people like you. And, you know, it, it's been a place that people can find. And I think that's really special. Yeah, that's exactly the goal. Uh, one of the goals we have is trying to make sure people see other visible LGBTQ mathematicians and see people they might be able to aspire to and reach out to or seek advice from or support from. So that's been one of our goals with formalizing and yeah. trying to increase our presence. Well, that's great. Yeah. Cool. Check out Spectra and, yep. um, and yeah, send Juliet an email, you know, about anything related to yeah. that. Or algebraic geometry or, yeah. or, algebraic or, geometry. or <laughs> mountaining. Yeah. yeah. Or mountaineering. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, yeah. this has been great fun. Thanks for joining us, Juliet. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast prior to this, so I really appreciate the opportunity to say some hopefully coherent words about my paper. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, thank you. I just I love all the the different perspectives mm -hmm. we get by talking with yeah. so many different that's people here. Cool. Yeah, that's the best part. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to my favorite theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia 
percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chai Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at Nivik that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics. <laughs>